Section 13 of Mimic Lives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Prompter's Daughter by Anna Cora Mawet Ritchie. Chapter 4. Tina had just entered her sixth year when she was entrusted with the role of the young Duke of York in Shakespeare's tragedy Richard III. The pulse of true genius stirred within her soul, always exultant when her high gifts were brought into use, caused her to experience an inexplicable, indescribable fascination for her profession, a fascination that counterbalanced the weariness, the anxieties, the trials that crowd the actor's smoothest pathway. Even at that early age, she was a close student of her art. She had an intense love for the poet's conception and for its lifelike embodiment, rather than any undue fondness for applause. The latter was overvalued as a token that she had fitly interpreted her author, that she had done her duty. The power of mental concentration, of total self-forgetfulness, is the first great element of dramatic success and this she possessed in an eminent degree. The character of the young Duke of York she studied with an all-absorbing enthusiasm. In Act Fourth, the Duke of York enters with the Archbishop of York, Queen Elizabeth, and the Duchess of York. The following is the dialogue. Duchess. I long with all my heart to see the Prince. I hope he is much grown since last I saw him. Queen Elizabeth. But I hear no. They say my son of York hath almost o'ertake him in his growth. York. Ay, mother, but I would not have it so. Duchess. Why, my good cousin, it is good to grow. York. Grandam, one night, as we did sit at supper, my uncle Rivers talked how I did grow, more than my brother. I, quoth my uncle Gloucester, some herbs have grace great weeds do grow apace and since methinks i would not grow so fast because sweet flowers are slow and weeds make haste duchess good faith good faith the saying did not hold in him that did object the same to thee he was the wretchedest thing when he was young so long a-growing and so leisurely that if his rule were true he would be gracious Archbishop. And so, no doubt, he is, my gracious madam. Duchess. I hope he is, but yet let mothers doubt. York. Now, by my troth, if I had been remembered, I could have given my uncle's grace a flout, to touch his growth nearer than he touched mine. Duchess. How, my good York, I prithee, let me hear it. York. Mary, they say my uncle grew so fast that he could gnaw a crust at two hours old. Twas full two years ere I could get a tooth. Grandam, this would have been a biting jest. Duchess, I pray thee, pretty York, who told you this? York, Grandam, his nurse. Duchess, his nurse? Why, she was dead ere thou wert born. York. If it were not she, I cannot tell who told me. Queen Elizabeth, a parlous boy, 
Go to, you are too shrewd. These salient points were given with an earnest archness that evinced how thoroughly the child comprehended the character she assumed. In the third act, the young duke enters again, accompanied by Hastings and the cardinal. His elder brother, the Prince of Wales, thus greets the youthful duke. Prince. Richard of York, how fares our loving brother? A touch of childlike deference mingled with the tone of affection in which the young duke replied, York. Well, dread lord, so I must call you now, Prince. I, brother, to our grief as it is yours, too late he died that might have kept that title, which by his death have lost much majesty, Gloucester. How fares our cousin, noble lord of York? York. I thank you, gentle uncle. O oh, my lord, you said that idle weeds are fast in growth. The prince, my brother, hath outgrown me far. Gloucester. He hath, my lord. York. And therefore is he idle? Gloucester. O oh, my fair cousin, I must not say so. York. Then he is more beholden to you than I. Gloucester. He may command me as my sovereign. But you have power in me as a kinsman, York. I pray you, uncle, then give me this dagger, Gloucester. Uh, my dagger, little cousin, with all my heart, Prince. A beggar, brother, York. Of my kind uncle, that I know will give, and being but a toy, which is no grief to give, Gloucester. A greater gift than that i'll give my cousin york a greater gift oh that's the sword to it gloucester ay gentle cousin were it light enough york oh then i see you'll part with but light gifts in weightier things you'll say a beggar nay gloucester it is too weighty for your grace to bear york i weigh it lightly were it heavier Gloucester. What? Would you have my weapon, little lord? York. I would that I might thank you as you call me, Gloucester. How? York. Little. Prince. My lord of York will still be cross in talk, uncle. Your grace knows how to bear with him. York. You mean to bear me? not to bear with me. Uncle, my brother mocks both you and me. Because I am little, like an ape, he thinks that you should bear me on your shoulders. Buckingham. With what sharp provided wit he reasons. To mitigate the scorn he gives his uncle, he prettily and aptly taunts himself. So cunning and so young is wonderful. Gloucester. My gracious lord, will please you to pass along myself and my good cousin buckingham will you to your mother to entreat of her to meet you at the tower and welcome you york what will you go into the tower my lord prince my lord protector needs will have it so york i will not sleep quiet in the tower gloucester why sir what would you fear york mary my uncle Clarence, angry ghost, my grandam told me he was murdered there. Prince. 
I fear no uncle's dead, Gloucester. Nor none that live, I hope, Prince. And if they live, I hope I need not fear. But come, my lord, and with a heavy heart, thinking on them, I go unto the tower. The prince twins his arms around the reluctant York, who looks back to Gloucester with a doubtful glance, shaking his head mournfully while he goes out, as if some dark foreshadowing of his fate were flitting across his mind. Will it be credited that the hearty applause called forth by Tina's acting excited the displeasure of the distinguished tragedian who represented Richard? He felt as though the child's delineation of her part rendered her too prominent in a picture where he had the right to stand in solitary conspicuousness. He desired alone to engross the public eye. His surroundings must all be subordinate accessories, satellites that would not interfere with his more luminous shining. That he could exhibit envy towards a child may seem an absurdity to many, it will be recognized as an incident of constant occurrence by those who move within the narrow circle of the profession. At the close of the play, there was, of course, a call for Upton, who had impersonated Richard, but he had scarcely made his bow before the footlights when a second cry arose for the young Duke of York. The child had never before been honored by a similar summons, one which actors highly value. After the exertions and fatigues of the evening, the call before the curtain is to them a refreshing mark of approval, which stars are very unwilling to forego. Robin, from his prompter's seat, heard the name of his child rising in peals. His breast glowed with tumultuous transport, yet stage etiquette forbade him to apprise Tina or in any manner to notice the wishes of the audience until the stage manager sent forth his orders. Mr. Tuttle adhered to the principle of never putting an actor forward for fear that he might rise above his control or demand an increase of salary. He listened to the call, comprehended it perfectly, secretly admitted its justice, but to all appearance remained singularly deaf. He issued no commands. He hoped the audience would grow weary and the applause die away but the impression made was too deep. The acclamations only grew louder when the audience found its demand was unnoticed. Mr. Higgins, who, from his post in the box-keeper's office, could overhear all that took place, now hastened behind the scenes and demanded why Tuttle had not sent on the child. It was the manager's policy to encourage this favoritism of his patrons, for it rendered Tina doubly valuable to him. As for spoiling the true hearts, he had no fear of that. He had too great a hold on them. But he, he asked himself, would have engaged a hunchbacked prompter. Did he answer himself that when Robin Trueheart applied for a situation that Hunch had given the wily manager a pretext for cutting off one-third of the prompter's usual salary? Oh, no, he forgot that small item, and actually persuaded himself that he had employed Robin out of charity. Send on Miss Trueheart at once, Tuttle, said Higgins majestically. Mr. Tuttle bowed and declared that he was just on the point of doing so, 
then ordered the prompter to notify Miss Trueheart to appear before the curtain without delay, also to summon Richmond of the evening to conduct her. Robin's heart beat with a stroke that was almost audible. Up the long, narrow flight of stairs he scrambled, taking two steps at a time. Susan had not anticipated this tribute to her child's talents. She had disrobed Tina of her black velvet tunic, glittering with bugle embroidery. The child was now attired in a coarse red calico dress and a white bib. She was sitting on her mother's knee, half asleep, when Robin knocked at the door, for the dressing-room was appropriated to half a dozen ladies besides Susan. In an agitated tone, he told Susan to bring out Tina. "'What is it, Robin, dear?' asked Susan, opening the door. "'Bring the birdie, quickly. She is called, called before the curtain. Do you hear those shouts, wife? They are calling for her, for our little one. She played magnificently. Come, come quickly.' Susan had never heard her grave, tranquil husband speak so rapidly, so incoherently. She was lost in amazement, and so was the suddenly awakened child. But Robin took the latter in his arms and ran down the steps. Such an interval had elapsed, he feared the call would cease. The gentleman who impersonated Richmond was standing by the curtain, waiting for it to be drawn back. Susan had only recovered her presence of mind in time to say, "'You are to curtsy, darling, as you cross the stage, curtsy several times, as often as they seem to want.' When the audience beheld, instead of the noble Duke of York, in his rich ducal garb, the little girl, evidently startled out of sleep, in her calico dress and white bib and rough shoes, there was a general laugh. But Tina curtsied gracefully, and half laughed herself, comprehending their cause and merriment. She had established a species of magnetic communication between herself and her audiences, and this response to their mirth drew her more closely to them. They saw, too, how lovely was this child in her mean attire, how little costlier raiment had contributed to display her infantile grace and beauty. Susan could hardly sleep for joy that night, and Robin lay in waking dream. But Tina's slumbers were undisturbed by the weight of her fresh laurels. Richard III was repeated several nights in succession. Tina's performance was an acknowledged feature, which added to the popularity of the tragedy. She was always called before the curtain, but Susan was too hopeful of the repetition of that honor again to substitute the red calico dress for the duckle vestments even mr upton's heart was not proof against the child's witchery of manner she continued so docile so unelated by adulation rumor whispered in mr higgins ear that other theatres were about to make robin advantageous offers the hit made by his daughter had been noised about london the manager was quite aware that father and mother, as well as their little one, could command much better salaries than he allowed them, salaries that would place them in comparatively easy circumstances. Before these whispers of preferment could reach Robin, the prompter was summoned to the box office. Mr. Higgins praised Tina in a highly sententious and condescending manner, 
then inquired whether Robin would not like to sign a contract for the engagement of himself, his wife, and his child for three years. The wily manager took great care to impress upon the poor prompter's mind that he meant to confer on him and his needy family an especial favor. As a mark of his generosity, he proposed to raise Tina's salary from ten shillings per week to... Fifteen. Robin's upright manner harbored no suspicions. He thankfully signed the contract, which, already drawn up, lay upon the table. On his return home, he was rejoicing with Susan over this increase in their funds and describing to her Mr. Higgins' unusual suavity of manner when a letter was placed in his hands. It contained an offer for his services and those of Susan and Tina at the Princess's Theatre with a salary of ten pounds per week. And he had engaged with Higgins to receive three pounds and a quarter weekly for three years. Robin crushed the letter in his hands after he perused it. Higgins must have known this, he exclaimed. He has bound me by this wicked contract and prevented my rendering you and the birdie comfortable besides laying up something for a rainy day. He has outwitted me. And what is to be done? Nothing could be done. True Heart was forced to abide by the contract from which Higgins, when he was told of this more lucrative offer, showed not the slightest intention of releasing him. King John was the next Shakespearean revival, and it was selected principally to give Tina an opportunity of appearing as Prince Arthur. Her gift of personation now revealed itself in a striking manner. There was a strong contrast between her piquant, shrewd, parlous Duke of York and the tender, melancholy, loving Prince Arthur. The scene in which Arthur pleads with Hubert when he is commissioned to put out the prince's eyes, move the audience to tears. A look of premature sorrow pervaded the whole mien. The weight of the early care betrayed itself in the child's very step when Arthur enters and greets Hubert with a subdued, Good morrow, Hubert. Hubert. Good morrow, little prince. Arthur. As little prince, having so great a title, to be more prince as may be, you are sad. Hubert. Indeed, I have been merrier. Arthur. Mercy on me. Methinks nobody should be sad but I. Yet I remember when I was in France, young gentlemen would be sad at night only for wantonness. By my Christendom. So were I out of prison and kept sheep. I would be merry as the day is long. And so I would be here, but that I doubt my uncle practices more harm to me. He is afraid of me, and I of him. Is it my fault that I am Geoffrey's son? No, indeed, tis not. And I would, to heaven, I were your son. And so you would love me, Hubert? Hubert. If I talk to him with his innocent prate, he will awake my mercy, which is dead. Therefore I will be sudden and desperate. Arthur. Are you sick, Hubert? You look pale today. In sooth, I word you were a little sick, 
that I would sit all night and watch with you. I warrant I love you more than you do me, Hubert. His words do take possession of my bosom. Read here, young Arthur, showing a paper. How now, felt foolish room, aside. Turning a most dispiteous torture out of door, I must be brief, lest resolution drop. Out at mine eyes, in tender womanish tears. Can you not read it? It is it not fair writ, Arthur. Too fairly, Hubert, for so foul effect. Must you with hot irons burn out mine eyes? Hubert, young boy, I must. Arthur, and will you? Hubert, and I will. Arthur, have you the heart? When your head did but ache, I knit your my handkerchief about your brows. The best I had, a princess wrought at me. And I did never ask it you again. And with my hand at midnight held your head. And, like the watchful minutes of the hour, still and anon cheered up the heavy time, saying, What lack you, and where lies your grief, or what good love may I perform you? Many a poor man's son would have lain still, and ne'er spoken a loving word to you, but you at your sick service had a prince. Nay, you may think your love was crafty love, and calling it cunning, do, and if you will. If heaven be pleased that you must use me ill, why, then you must. Will you put out mine eyes? These eyes that never did, nor ever shall, so much as frown on you? Hubert, I have sworn to do it, and with hot irons I must burn them out. Arthur, ah, but none in this iron age would do it. The iron of itself, though heat red hot, approaching near these eyes, would drink my tears, and quench his fiery indignation, even in the matter of mine innocence. Nay, after that, Consume away in rust, but for containing fire to harm mine eye. Are you more stubborn hard than hammered iron? And if an angel should have come to me, and told me Hubert should put out mine eyes, and believe no tongue but Hubert's. Hubert, come forth, stamp, enter attendance with cord, iron, and etc. Do as I bid you. Arthur, oh, save me, Hubert, save me. Mine eyes are out, even with the fierce look of these bloody men. Hubert, give me the iron, I say, and bind him here. Arthur, alas, why need you so boisterous rough? I will not struggle. I will stand stone still. For heaven's sake, Hubert, let me not be bound. Nay, here, Hubert, drive these men away and I will sit as quiet as a lamb. I will not stir, nor wince, nor speak a word, nor look upon the iron angrily. Thrust but these men away, and I'll forgive you whatever torment you do put me to. Hubert, go stand within. Let me alone with him. First attendant. I am best pleased to be away from such a deed. Exempt attendants. Arthur. Alas! Then I have chid away my friend. He hath a stern look, but a gentle heart. Let him come back. 
that his compassion may give life to yours. Hubert, come, boy, prepare yourself. Arthur, is there no remedy? Hubert, none but to lose your eyes. Arthur, oh, heaven, that there were but a note in yours, a grain, a dust, a gnat, a wandering hair, any annoyance in those precious scents, then feeling what small things are boisterous there, your vile intent must needs seem horrible. Hubert, is this your promise? Go to, hold your tongue. Arthur, Hubert, the entrance of a brace of tongues must needs want pleading for a pair of eyes. Let me not hold my tongue, let me not, Hubert, or, Hubert, if you will, cut out my tongue so I may keep mine eyes. Oh, spare mine eyes, though no use but to still look upon you. Lo, by my troth, the instrument is cold and would not harm me. Hubert, I can heed it, boy. Arthur, no, in good sooth, the fire is dead with grief, being create for cold to be used in undeserved extremes. See, else you yourself, there is no malice in this burning cold. The breath of heaven hath blown his spirit out and strewn repentant ashes on his head. Hubert, but with my breath I can revive it, boy. Arthur, and if you do, you will but make it blush and glow with the shame of your proceedings, Hubert. Nay, it perchance will sparkle in your eyes and, like a dog that is compelled to fight, snatch at its master that doth tear him on. All things that you should use to do me wrong deny their office. Only you do lack that mercy which fierce fire and iron extend, creatures of note for mercy lacking uses. Hubert. Well, see to live. I will not touch thine eyes, for all the treasures that thine uncle owes. Yet I am sworn, and I did purpose, boy, with this same very iron to burn them out. Arthur. Oh, now you look like Hubert. All this while you were disguised. Hubert. Peace. No more. Adieu. Your uncle must not know, but you are dead. I'll fill these dogged spies with false reports. And, pretty child, sleep doubtless and secure that Hubert, for all the wealth of the world, will not offend thee. Arthur. Oh, heaven! I thank you, Hubert. The escaped prince next appears in the act fourth, scene third, upon a wall before the castle, and speaks thus. Arthur. The wall is high, and yet I will leap down. Good ground. Be pitiful. And hurt me not. There is few or none do not know me, and if they did, this shipboy's semblance hath disguised me quite. I am afraid, and yet I'll venture it. If I get down and do not break my limbs, I'll find a thousand shifts to get away. As good to die and go as die and stay. He leaps down, and, after the fall, feebly groans out the words. Oh, me! My uncle's spirit is on these stones. Heaven take my soul, and England keep my bones. Dies. The wall was sufficiently high to cause a shudder when the prince leaped down. 
dread that the child was in reality injured was increased by the pathetic tone in which the last lines were delivered pembroke salisbury and bijot enter the body of arthur is not first perceived then pembroke bending over the corpse gives utterance to that exquisite line o death made proud with pure and princely beauty hubert brings the glad tidings that arthur is safe and is shown the boy stark and dead upon the ground when accused of his murder he replies tis but an hour since i left him well i honoured him i loved him and weep my date of life out of his sweet life's loss the child is born in hubert's arms and it was not until the close of his protracted scene that the anxiety of tina's parents was relieved and they found that she had escaped injury she was so light and supple that by relaxing her limbs when she fell and making no resistance she might have dropped from a much more alarming height without receiving a bruise her performance of prince arthur had made so deep an impression that the papers now began to trumpet her praises mr upton whose admiration for the child's dramatic gifts and attraction to her lovable character had overcome his former sense of professional envy proposed the production of william tell and tina's appearance as albert there was a long discussion of at the manager's table tina could doubtless enact albert and make what the low comedian humorously styled a hard hit and striking hit but her exceedingly delicate features her fairy-like proportions were partially unsuited to the bold sturdy mountain boy we expect to see a tall man when othello is personated suggested mr upton but i believe no one remembered mr keene's diminutive stature when he represented the moor his genius lifted him up until he looked grander than men of six feet who surrounded him this argument was conclusive the play was cast and tina commenced studying albert the character inspired her with fresh delight when the appointed night came mr upton's judgment proved correct her vigorous step the width and decisiveness of her movement the power of her voice the rustic boldness of her bearing caused the unsuitableness of her stature to be overlooked in the same scene the boy springs down the rocks at the call of emma his mother the replies to her two first queries though so simple were spoken in a tone of deep reverence which the child could not have simulated had not her heart been so full of unaffected devoutness emma knelt you when you got up to-day albert i did and do so every day emma i know you do and think you when you kneel to whom you kneel albert i do emma you have been early up when i that played the sluggard in comparison am up full early for the highest peaks alone as yet behold the sun now tell me what you ought to think upon when you see the sun so shining on the peak albert that as the peak feels not the pleasant sun or feels it least so they who have the highest stand in fortune smile are gladdened by it least or not at all 
Emma. And what's the profit you should turn this to? Albert. Rather to place my good in what I have than to think it worthless, wishing to have more. For more is not more happiness so off as less. Emma. I'm glad you husband what you're taught. That is the lesson of content, my son. He who finds which has all, who misses nothing. Albert's shooting, his desire to emulate his heroic mountaineer, his father, his attention to Tell's instructions concerning the use of the bow, all these interested the audience. But it was not until the second act, when Albert encounters Gessler fainting upon the rock, gives him to drink, and offers to show him the way to Altorf, that the dramatic abilities of the child were tested. Albert. You've lost your way upon the hill. Gessler. I have. Albert. And whither would you go? Gessler. To Altorf. Albert. I'll guide you hither. Gessler. You're a child. Albert. I know the way. The track I've come is far harder to find. Gessler. The track you've come? What means you? Sure you have not been still further in the mountains. Albert. I've traveled from Mount Farragel. Gessler. No one with thee? Albert. No one but God. Gessler. Do you not fear these storms? Albert. God's in the storms. Gessler. And there's torrents, too, that must not be crossed. Albert. God's by the torrent, too. Gessler. You're but a child. Albert. God will be with a child. Gessler. You're sure you know the way. Albert. Tis but to keep the side of yonder stream. Gessler. But guide me safe, and I'll give thee gold. Albert. I'll guide thee safe without. Gessler. Here's earnest for thee. Offers gold. Here, I'll double that. Yea, treble it. But see me at the gate, to Aldorf. Why would you refuse the gold? Take it. Albert. No. Gessler. You shall. Albert. I will not. Gessler. Why? Albert. Because I do not covet it. And though I did, it would be wrong to take it at the price of doing one a kindness. Gessler. Ha! Who taught thee that? Albert. My father. Gessler. Does he live in Altorf? Albert. No, in the mountains. Gessler. How? A mountaineer? He should become a tenant of the city. He'd gain by it. Albert. Not so much as he might lose by it. Gessler. What might he lose by it? Albert. Liberty. Gessler. Indeed. He also taught thee that. Albert. He did. Gessler. His name? Albert. This is the way to Altorf, sir. Gessler. I'd know thy father's name. Albert. The day is wasting. We have far to go. Gessler. Thy father's name, I say. Albert. I will not tell it thee. Gessler. Not tell it to me? Why? Albert. You may be an enemy of his. Gessler. May be a friend. Albert. May be, but should you be an enemy, although I would not tell you my father's name, 
I'd guide you safe to Altorf. Will you follow me? Gessler. Never mind thy father's name. What would it profit me to know? Thy hand. We are not enemies. Albert. I never had an enemy. Gessler. Lead on. Albert. Advance yourself as you descend, and fix it well. Come on. Gessler. What? Must we make that steep? Albert. Tis nothing. Come. I'll go before, ne'er fear. Come on. Come on. Exeunt. Gessler and Albert are next seen at the gate of Altorf. Albert. You're at the gate of Altorf. Gessler. Terry boy. Albert. I would be back. I'm waited for. Gessler. Come back. Who waits for thee? Come, tell me. I'm rich and powerful and can reward. Albert. Tis close on evening. I have to go. I'm late. Gessler. Stay. I can punish, too. Albert. I might have left you on the hill where I found you, fainting, and the mist around you. But I stopped and cheered you until you, to yourself you came again. I offered to guide you when you could not find the way, and I have brought you to the gate of Altorf. Gessler. Boy, do you know me? Albert. No. Gessler. Why fear you, then, to trust me with your father's name? Speak. Albert. Why do you desire to know it? Gessler. You have served me, and I would thank him if I chanced to pass his dwelling. Albert. "'Twould not please him that service so trifling should be made so much of. Gessler. "'Trifling? You saved my life. Albert. "'Then do not question me, but let me go. Gessler. "'When I have learned from thee thy father's name. What ho?' Sentinel within. "'Who's there?' Gessler. "'Gessler!' Albert. "'Ha! Gessler!' The gate is open. Gessler to the soldiers. "'Seize him!' Wilt thou tell me thy father's name? Albert. No. Gessler. I can bid them cast thee into a dungeon. Wilt thou tell it to me now? Albert. No. Gessler. I can bid them strangle thee. Wilt thou tell, tell it? Albert. Never. Gessler. Away with him. Soldiers take off Albert through the gate. In the third act, William Tell has been taken prisoner and brought before Gessler. Albert refuses to recognize his father, whose life he fears he may endanger. Tell, also, sentenced by the tyrant to die, will not acknowledge the boy, and bids him farewell as though he were the child of another, sending by him a message to his mother. But when Albert is sentenced to death by the inhuman Gessler, the father is overpowered. He yields to conquering nature, embraces his child, confessing that he is a parent. Then Gessler offers him freedom if he will shoot an apple from his child's head, risking that child's life, or an eye, or mangling of his cheek, his lips, the lips his mother has so often covered with kisses. After a fierce mental struggle, the father consents. The moment for the trial arrives. The arrow is aimed, faithfully sped. The boy is safe. Father and son are free. Albert has not many words to utter during this last thrilling scene, but the variations of the child's eloquent countenance, the spontaneous gesticulations, the by-play, as it is styled in stage parlance, 
spoke more emphatically than language filled out the part even more fully and beautifully than it had been contrived by the poet tina's graphic delineation of albert had assisted mr upton in his personation of tell he was generous enough to admit the fact the instant that the green curtain had fallen between the actors and the audience he turned to susan and said ah oh, you may be well proud of her she will make the first actress of her day i never saw anything so true to nature the call was now deafening all ears mr tuttle advanced they are calling you mr upton be so good as to not keep the audience waiting miss trueheart don't go to your room they are calling you also you will go out afterwards no said mr upton warmly she richly deserves a call she shall go on with me a star who is supposed to receive all first honors and never to share them to propose conducting before the footlights in answer to his own summons a child one of the stock company the prompter's daughter this was indeed an unprecedented condescension the tragedian led tina out the unusually hearty welcome of the audience implied a recognition of the courteous act this would have repaid him had he not been more amply compensated by that internal sense of delight that emanates from the consciousness of having performed a generous deed he found an additional reward in the expression of robin's countenance as he held back the curtain for them to make their exeunt and said in a low feeling tone i thank you sir very few stars would have done what you have just done end of section thirteen